Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favourites and see if they stand the test of time. I'm Shane. I'm Bobby. And I'm Patrick. And today we are reviewing Quigley. Well, in Australia it was just called Quigley, but everywhere else it's called (laughs) Quigley Down Under. (laughs) Directed by Simon Winsor and starring Tom Selleck, Alan Rickman, Laura Sangiacomo, Tony Bonner, Chris Haywood, and a very young Ben Mendelsohn. Well, they, they had to say it was down under here to explain why all the people were talking funny in the film for all American audiences. <laughs> well, it doesn't explain why Crocodile Dundee in L.A. was called that. I mean, <laughs> I think it's just, just to give recognition of where Quigley was. Well... If they would have called it Paul Hogan Needs a Paycheck, then no one would have gotten solved it. That's what that was. That was the original motivation for the third film. Well, he must need more money because it was only announced yesterday that Paul Hogan has agreed to Crocodile Dundee 4. Are you kidding me? Oh, I hadn't no. even seen that. Oh. Yeah, it's, it made news here yesterday. So depending on when you're listening to this, uh, it might already be out, but it was announced that it's been greenlit and Paul Hogan, who said no to a fourth movie for such a long time, has agreed to it. And there'll be, oh. there'll be no Kit Linda Kozlowski because they got divorced in 2014. <laughs> oh, don't, don't be so sure. <laughs> well, and Paul Hogan's skin is as bad as the crocodile's now anyway, isn't it? With his well, it'll be, it'll be the scene if he can be the senior citizen crocodile Dundee, and there's kids or something involved. Maybe it'll work. It depends what the screenplay does. I guess it it could be funny. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but before we begin, uh, we better we better have a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Gold Standard Travel Company, three months in a leaky boat. If you're not a British colony convict hauling ass across the big blue in rat-infested scurvy schooners bound for the world's biggest island, Australia, try three months in a leaky boat travel company direct from the USA. Arrive on board with no customs bothering you about shotguns or sharp spurs. Enjoy open cabins with no windows or roof to shun the amazing view. Food served on clean plates, except you'll have to catch it yourself with our free nets available on board. Whether you're from the sunny coast or the wild west, try six months in a leaky boat for a -a one-of-a-kind journey to a continent with more deadly animals than anywhere else in the world, a mix of Europeans only there because of crimes committed, and terrible treatment of their own. But that's another story. Act now, and six months in a leaky boat will upgrade your food to quality kangaroo or lizard to be washed down with a flagon of brown musket. 
pillows and buckets optional. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was boring. That's <laughs> no, fine. That was good. I like leaving it to Chris normally um, because he's the funny one. <laughs> okay, who, who's got the so- summary today? I do. Cool. An Australian cattle baron has advertised internationally for the greatest long-range marksman in the world to hunt dingoes off his ranch, which is the size of half of Dananda. He gets a unique response in a newspaper clipping having six holes shot through from 900 yards away by a Wyoming cowboy who looks a lot like sexy Magnum P.I. exchanging his Hawaiian shirts for authentic cowboy garb. Matthew Quigley arrives in Fremantle, Australia with his saddle and his experimental sharps rifle, dressed as a lever action breech loader usual barrel lengths 30 inches this one has an extra four it's converted to use a special 45 caliber 110 grain metal cartridge with a 540 grain paper patch bullet it's fitted with double set triggers and a vernier sight marked up to 1200 yards this one shoots a mite further just off the boat matthew and his sharps are immediately met by the cattle baron's men who unknowingly pick a fight with quigley and his sharps when they try throwing an american prostitute named crazy cora into the back of their wagon once they realize they are all on the same side, Quigley, his sharps, Crazy Cora, and all the other people who are future rifle targets pile into the wagon and travel many days over the land that Crocodile Dundee discovered on his way to Marsden Waters, the gigantic ranch owned by Hans Gruber from Die Hard, reincarnated <laughs> as Elliot Marsden, Ozzy asshole extraordinaire. Quigley hops off the wagon and is immediately challenged to show if he's as good with his sharps as his newspaper clipping advertised. He proves he never had any use for handguns, but he has an uncanny ability to assassinate an innocent bucket with three bullets from a thousand yards away. He's hired on the spot and is asked to feast over the decision. What Marsden forgot to mention was Quigley's unique skills would not be used to hunt dingoes, but to kill Australia's version of American Indians, the Aborigines. Quigley responds by knocking Marsden out of his own house. Twice. Quigley is promptly attacked by the ranch hands and is taken prisoner. Instead of killing him on the spot like Marsden's character should have, Quigley and Crazy Cora are driven two days away from the ranch by the dead man walking who just so happens to have taken Quigley's sharps with him on the trip because without the sharps, we wouldn't have a movie. Quigley escapes with Cora and his prized sharps into the outback, no food and no sunscreen. They collapse later to die in the blazing sun, but are rescued by a band of spiritual aborigines who spend an entire montage nursing them back to health, magically healing the stage three sunburns, and teaching the duo how the aborigines are the dream team of spiritual native beings, and isn't Marsden a first-class turd for hunting them in the first place. Once healed, the tribe leaves Quigley and friends, only to be run down by Marsden's men, who Quigley guns down from long range because, oh, isn't it fun to watch a forty-five caliber super bullet knock some dickweed off the back of his horse from a mile away? Abandoned by the fleeing Aborigines, Quigley and Crazy Cora ride in circles for as long as the movie needs until they come upon a different group of helpless Aborigines pushed to the edge of a cliff by Marsden's heavily armed minions who want to see if Aborigines can fly. Cora runs toward the minions armed with nothing but a ragged hoop skirt, a loud scream, and her two very impressive, um, her hat bouncing up and down with each step. (laughs) 
Quigley aims his sharps and picks off all but one of the thugs because somebody has to warn Marsden that Quigley is still shooting holes in dumbasses from long distance. Cora goes to the bottom of the cliff and is devastated to realize the entire tribe is murdered, except for one small baby has survived. Cora adopts the baby, where Quigley finds a convenient, fully backlit cave with plenty of room for future killings of dingoes in the living room. He kills some iguanas and leaves Cora and the baby fully armed with another rifle and six-shooter from the dead guys, while he rides off to a far-off town to get supplies. Quigley arrives in the town and has just enough time to eat, hobnob with the local mercantile, get plenty of supplies, and replace his extremely rare ammunition, all while Cora is left starving in the wilderness. Quigley's horse is immediately identified from long distance, in the dark, by drunken Marsden men, who recognize the only American saddle in the entire continent of Australia, which has to belong to Quigley, since no other American has ever visited the country, and since no Marsden man knows Quigley is still alive at this point in the movie. A firefight begins where Quigley is fired upon, so he returns fire while running upstairs that are caught on fire as bad guys fire at him from all directions, while locals fight the fire that could catch the entire town on fire if Quigley doesn't fire back at the bad guys, as they fire at him and he escapes the fire by climbing through a window that isn't on fire, where he leaps from the building that is on fire to a building that isn't on fire, which he uses as cover to escape the fire long enough to exchange fire with the bad guys who fire at him until he fires back killing all but one fired-up, drunk-on-firewater Marsden man who carries the message to Marsden they better keep the home fires burning because Quigley was fired and he's coming back and now wants to fire at Marsden and his fired-up sharps targets. Quigley heads back to the cave where, unbeknownst to him, Crazy Cora has defended the baby from an entire pack of dingoes masquerading as blood-covered Comanches. Intent on feasting on the baby and Cora's overly plump, Iguanas. <laughs> Quigley arrives to find Cora and the baby have survived. He rides them all to the town where Cora has to give up the baby just so she can regain her sanity and look radiant in the morning sun. Quigley and his sharps ride into the sunset to take on Marsden and his army of paper targets. Quigley's sharps roars to life from a thousand yards, blowing them away with one spectacular backflip after impressive backflip at a time. He is finally cornered, wounded, and dragged into Marston's courtyard behind a horse because, again, what's the point of killing him outright like every other normal villain when you can ridicule him in front of your men? Marsden decides he wants to challenge Quigley to a pistol fight between the sharps toting Quigley and Marsden's quick draw expertise. Will the pistol shy Quigley recognize which hog leg to grab since it's shoved into the front of his pants? Will Marsden realize he just gave a fully loaded six shooter to a bona fide killer from the American West who was friends with Wild Bill Hickok instead of giving him just one bullet so he can't kill everyone? <laughs> Will Marston's idiotic gunmen strap on bullseye targets across their chests for the final showdown while standing directly next to their arrogant boss instead of standing a safe distance away on Quigley's flank? This summary is spoiler-free, so we won't tell you that Quigley doesn't die and Marston's guys do. But the movie still isn't over. We'll leave that magical end for your viewing enjoyment, but it wouldn't be a modern western without a man, a woman, and his priceless weapon sailing off into the sunset on a boat instead of a horse. The end. <laughs> ah, well done, Bobby. But I'm pretty sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, we don't have iguanas down under. What was that? Goannas. Goan. Oh, <laughs> sorry. They're called goannas, and Crocodile Dundee eats one in the first oh. movie. <laughs> yeah. Is, wow. is, is that a requirement for every film that is filmed in Australia <laughs> that they have to eat a goanna at some point during the well, film? 
<laughs> I always thought iguanas were only in Miami and Robert Davy carried one around, but yeah, no, these they're called goannas and uh, they they can grow massive, like they're huge. But they're relative, like some actually come into people's backyards and you know they they won't hurt you. They're actually like friends. Until you kill them. Yeah, they won't harm you. Like a, you know, like any snake or whatever, I guess, if you leave them alone, most of them will leave you alone. (laughs) Anyway, that was a great, great summary there, Bobby. Uh, Very funny, too. You mentioned the the thing at the end with a a bit of a good, bad, and the ugly homie. (laughs) Wasn't that just like, what the hell? With no Ennio Morricone music. Uh, anyway, we better hear some stats. Patrick, you're the legend of movie stats. Well, what have yeah. we got? Yeah, I can look up things on the internet that's like the best of them. All right, Quigley Down Under was released on October 19th, 1990, at least in the United States. I don't know when Quigley was released in Australia. Uh, same week as the remake of Night of the Living Dead with Tony Todd, White Palace with uh, Susan Sarandon, and The re- Reversal of Fortune Bang with... Later. I'm sorry, what? With James Spader. Was it, he was in that, too. Yeah, but I was going with the highlight of the film, which was <laughs> Susan Sarandon. And Reversal of Fortune with uh, Jeremy Irons, who won the Best Actor that year for that role, uh, was released the same month as Avalon, Marked for Death with uh, Steven Seagal, Memphis Bell, The Hot Spot, Sibling Rivalry, and Stephen King's Graveyard Shift. Grossed twenty one over just over twenty one million dollars in the United States, making it the fifty ninth highest grossing film of nineteen ninety, right behind The Rookie with Clint Eastwood, The Freshman, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and right in front of Madhouse, Hamlet with Mel Gibson, and Jetsons the movie. Yes, that Jetsons the movie. Uh, and that's about it for st- statistics on Quigley Down Under. Not a, a, an award-winning film. If uh, for It got some obscure awards, but nothing of a major consequence. Well, the reason that it scored so low below The Freshman was because The Freshman had an iguana instead of a Guyana, <laughs> right? No, actually, Freshman had a kimono dragon. Oh, that, there we go. Sorry. Yeah, it was – It was. Uh, that was because it was a uh, – it was an endangered animal, and that was why they were getting together I, to right. eat it at the end. <laughs> Uh, that's funny uh, you say that bit, and I can't believe The Rookie it fell behind The Rookie uh, one yeah. of Clint Eastwood's best films Raul Julia Sonia Braga Clint, Charlie Sheen thought that was a good one that was a good one <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, first of, of all I end my analysis of a good one ends with well Charlie Sheen's in it well I I know everything I need to know but that was I worked in the movie theater when that one came out and we were really, really disappointed because I think we had the trifecta that year of, well, I, I forget Charlie Sheen wasn't in Young Guns 2, but we had Young Guns 2, Men at Work and The Rookie. So we had the like the entire Estevez, Estevez clan that's uh, that summer leading into the fall of crappy films. So Yeah. Uh, I just saw Sonia Braga in Wonder. She plays the grandmother in that movie. Oh, I didn't know uh, she was in that. Yeah, small role, but I, it was great to see her. I've always liked her um, in the past, even in The Rookie. thought it was all right. Uh, it was released, by the way, and I'm sure you're interested, that uh, we didn't get it down here until June 1991. Oh. So I can't believe, that was back in the day when I think... 
a lot of movies did take a time to to appear on the screen in cinemas as opposed to now where they're almost instant, you know, the same date as everywhere else around the world. But I think even though it's an Australian movie, it's kind of shocked me because it would have been made with American money, I guess, and finances. So maybe that's why it was released in America, you know, six months earlier. Or it could have been that the one print they made of the film, based off the grosses it had, took a long time to rotate down to Australia. That's just, <laughs> That could be true. There was a time, and I worked in a cinema too, where we used to get prints from overseas, mostly Asian countries, but American prints would also come into the cinema that had been used previously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd seen enough prints when I worked in the theater of when we would run like an older film for like a midnight show or something like that, where, I mean, obviously that thing had been run thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It had been, you know, spliced together with, the, the, you know, there were so many, it, it was a very used copy of what, what, what you would see. Uh, Bobby, had you seen it at the movies? Or? I did, yeah. I saw this twice in the movie theater. Uh, I this is This is one of my favorite westerns so it, it's it's always had kind of a place in my heart but uh yeah it, it, this one i know that it had the stars you know tom Selleck was coming out of magnum and wasn't a, a bona fide movie star never really was you've got you know laura san Giacomo who came off of what was the show where she was in the news just the shoot newsroom. no just shoot me that's just shoot me that yeah. came later that was she wasn't coming was out later yeah, that came so a couple. Pretty of, Woman was in this time frame. Yeah, um, things like that. Pretty Woman and Sex Lies and Videotape was when I first saw her. Gotcha. And then Alan Rickman, of course, is he's always he's got the the perfect bad guy to me. So it had uh, it had a good grouping. And then I've always been intrigued by the Wild West type setting and having it in Australia in the outback was really special because it was different than what you normally see in a western. Patrick, I'm assuming you saw it on the big screen? I, I did. It did not play at the theater I worked at, but I did go to another theater to see it. I really I really enjoyed it. And, and like Bobby, I saw it twice in the theaters. I know I saw it during its initial week of release, probably, or the first two weeks. Yeah. And, yep. you know, in the United States, we have like dollar, we used to have dollar theaters where that would be kind of like the end run before it would disappear onto home video. And I liked it enough that when I saw it, it was playing at the Dollar Theater. I ran down there and caught it again on one weekend. I really, I really did enjoy this film, even though you know Tom Selleck's dressed like a rodeo clown through most of the film with his bright colors. <laughs> and- yeah, I never did. I never saw it at the movies. Uh, I remember it on VHS when I was working in the video shop. It had a really huge clam shell cover and with his face on the front, and it was all about Tom Selleck. But I can, I just don't remember it being at the theatre, and if it was, it wouldn't have been for long. I, I caught pretty much everything I could that was released, even as a kid, right through to my adult years. So, um, no, I never got to see it on the big screen, but I know it was a pretty popular renting VHS back in the day. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I worked in Tucson, Arizona at the video store, so... 
anything Western in Tucson plays well. And so <laughs> and we, we, we were underbought for, I, I know when it came out on video for quickly down under, because it was always checked out for a long time. We only got us too. Probably yeah, about, we did exactly the same thing. We had too few copies and it, it rented for months and months. It just, it kept going and going. It had such a life there that didn't have in the theater. And that's what surprised me because it was, I, as as we get into the the review here, it, I think it it should have had a, more legs than it did in the theater. But yeah, did either of you catch the sequel, Quigley in Japan? No, don't. They, re- <laughs> they renamed it Mister Baseball. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to be Chris and uh, okay. trying to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Uh, now, I know, Bobby, you mentioned about the scenery and it was different for a Western being down here. Um, we recently had a movie called The Proposition, which was a pretty good, darker Western. But unfortunately, as although it was supposed to be in Fremantle, most of the filming took place around Central Australia, Northern Territory. So yeah, we weren't anywhere. We weren't over there in WA. Uh, Victoria, some parts of Sydney... Gold Coast, even, I think there were some filming locations. But the cinematography, you're right, it, it looked great. That that really was the bonus of watching this movie for me. Well, and I think that was what was so special about it. I was watching the behind-the-scenes of it where they were interviewing Simon Windsor, discussing some of the old westerns where he was getting some of his inspiration from. And one of the thoughts was that because – American audiences, which is obviously where this one would have been targeted with our Western culture in the past, was to show like Monument Valley for the very first time to our to our audience. Because I know in Australia, Shane, you guys see your country quite often in different places. We hadn't really seen your country very well or very often, definitely not in a Western. And to have all those settings, even if they're not necessarily geographically correct, it sure was special to see something different that you didn't already see 50 times in the John Wayne movies. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty true. And you, we have we did have uh, Mick Jagger play Ned Kelly. That was a Western that, that flopped. <laughs> Even I didn't like that. Uh, what about the the actors in it? I mean, Tom Selleck. You were saying your opinion that he never really made it as a movie star, and you're you're sort of right. But he made good movies. Well, in yes. my eyes, anyway, certain sort of uh, unique films like Runaway and High Road to China. Two that always come to mind. Uh, Lassiter was also pretty good about a thief that had flopped dismally, but it was still a pretty good movie. But In and Out, when he did that comedy, was sort of like a return for him uh, in a way, and he shaved the moustache off for that one. Right. Well, actually, what was interesting, my wife and I were we we like Tom Selleck. We always have you know Three Men and a Baby and so on. But in westerns, my dad. Uh, turned me on to the Sackets as a book and to watch the Sackets miniseries, Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott are in that and it's a wonderful western miniseries and then to have him in this and then they did uh, the Shadow Riders 
uh, another TV movie and so on. So he's been in Westerns before, and I think it's a very good genre for him. He's got that rugged look. I know he's a volleyball player from California and so on, but he's got that rugged look to him when he's out there in the in the wilderness, and it's kind of – I really enjoy seeing him try to rough it. And he didn't look out of place in this movie, especially as a sharpshooter. He was – I can't necessarily see him as a knife fighter up close, but from a distance – I thought he was really well cast for this. Yeah, I you think, agree, Patrick. Yeah, I think Tom Selleck is one of the most underappreciated actors to come out of the eighties. That he he did do a series of really good films that just were not box office successes, and of course the the legendary uh, m- him missing out on having the chance to play Indiana Jones due to being picked up or Magnum PI being picked up and he had to commit to that television series is, you know, legendary that he, you know, he missed on that. But this is, this is another example. I mean, three men and a baby was a hit without a doubt, but it's pretty much the sole hit of his career. I mean, he has a lot of like runaway is a great film. I like runaway. It was a really entertaining (laughs) film. I like Lassiter. High Road to China is a little bit, uh, that, that's a little dull, but Lassiter was a good film. This is a good film. Mr. Baseball is not a bad film. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. as much as he made fun of it, uh, you know, in and out, he is, he's a good, he, he plays a supporting role in it and he does a very, very good job in the film. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's an actor that, if he's in it, I'm probably going to watch it because I like him. I like yes. watching him in the role. And he he's brought me to things that I probably wouldn't have watched. The Jesse Stone television movie series on CBS for like old people is it's a series that I watch religiously now whenever they release a new two hour movie television movie because he's in it and I like him in that character. And it's very it's very comfortable and relaxing. He makes me feel comfortable with the character, whatever film he's ever in. And. I, I wish he would have had more success in his career. I, I think he's deserving of it. But I, I do think of him more as a successful television actor than a successful film actor. Yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you say there. Um, I've never seen a Jesse Stone movie, though, I've got <laughs> to admit. The last time I saw him on the big screen was in a movie with Ashton Kutcher called Killers. But that's a few years ago now, and I don't think he gets back on the big screen as enough. I think he should be. What about some other actors in the film? Uh, Alan Rickman apparently was an Australian in this. and I, <laughs> He was? To me, I don't think he was putting on an Australian accent. He was just doing his – he was just speaking normally. So, uh, yeah, if he was uh, an Australian, I didn't pick it until he said it at the end. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought it, I thought he did straight Hans Gruber is what I got out of it without the German yeah. accent because yeah. his his character's identical and it, which is I'm not saying it's bad because that's actually I love Alan Rickman in that role. He does so many other movies where he's not the bad guy that the trifecta of of Quigley and Robin Hood and Die Hard is so hard to beat to get him out of that role it's it's i can't really see him there without feeling a little sadness that he went away from being the the perfect bad guy but i i really enjoy alan rickman and anything he does i thought he played this character even though yes it seemed like he was a transplanted brit in australia uh that was just handed the lottery for that big giant ranch i thought he played it as bad as he could and he did it with such a 
joy and a zeal for the the evil he was supposed to be putting out. It was fun to watch him play that bad guy uh, in in the West because you know he was a gentleman farmer out in the middle of the Australian outback. So. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Alan Rickman was a great actor. But in this, to me, he wasn't quite the master villain. He was an effective bad guy, but I kept on waiting him to sort of lose it and and go off the edge. Do you agree, Patrick? Well, you know, this is when I think of Alan Rickman, I think of him primarily as a villain, which is kind of weird because he does the three films, Die Hard, this one, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And that's kind of the end of his villainy. Um, he plays on that very successfully by playing Snape in the Harry Potter films because that mm-hmm. character is supposed to be perceived as villainy. And casting Alan Rickman was kind of a, a stroke of genius because that's what most Americans thought of, uh, of him as. But he was, you know, this he was just you know typecast in that role, and he never, re- although he did a lot of great films. Uh, Truly, Madly, Deeply was a film that was released yes. around the same time uh, as these films, and it, it's an under underappreciated gem that I, I I wish more people would go back and watch because it's one of the few films where he's a, a, a romantic lead in and does very well. I love him in Love Actually. That's one of my all-time favorite Christmas mm-hmm. films. I liked him in Dogma, a Kevin Smith film that I, I thought he played comedy in that really, really well. He, he he left way too soon. I, I enjoy yes. it. He's, once again, another actor that no matter w- what he was in, it would cause me to possibly stop and watch the film. You know, that the, and I'm blanking now. Is it Bottle Shock, the film about wine? Yes. That, yeah. And yeah, that's it. I, you know, I picked that up merely because his face is on the cover and really enjoyed that film. And I would never, <laughs> the subject matter is not anything that normally would have been something that I'm like, oh, I got to watch this. You know, it was like, oh, Alan, Rick's, Alan Rickman's in it. I've got it. I want to see it. So he, he's one of those actors who just drew me to watch uh, whatever he was in. Well, I think that's what's special about Alan Rickman, I think, is in an ensemble situation or even in a uh, good guy, bad guy situation, he makes the other actors better by the way he plays his character. And I think even in Robin Hood, I think his character in Quigley and his character in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves are are one and one A because he has a little more comedy to those. Die Hard was a little more devious and a little darker of the three it was also his first where he played that character but he just makes the scene better every time he's in there even though he may not necessarily rule the screen all the time that he's on the screen he's he makes the that sequence that much better just by showing up he gives his all in everything he does and that's what is special and that's what it, i agree patrick very much he's missed when he died that was that, that was a a knife through my heart he was one of my favorites yeah uh it, it definitely it, not, even if you weren't um film connoisseurs like us you pretty much knew who alan rickman was your kids liked harry potter so you knew him and your wife or your girlfriend might have liked Love Actually, so you knew him. Uh, I, I loved a movie he did called, which a lot of people don't know, called Judas Kiss oh. with uh, Emma Thompson and it also had Carl Gugino and Australian Simon Baker in it and Hal Holbrook. It's like a detective noir movie from the early 90s. 
Uh, late 90s, sorry. Um, it, it's great. Like, it's a really cool movie. He's an American in that, and it was something different for him. But he could really convert his acting style. I can't comment on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because it's been that long. I only saw it at the cinema. I have not seen it in full since. I just remember Sean Connery turning up at the end and getting paid $10 million bucks or something. But, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll have to rewatch uh, Robin Hood. But Alan Rickman in general, um, even stuff like Sense and Sensibility, and that he's just he's just great. Yes. In. Now I have a problem. Actually, before we talk about some other issues in the film, any other actors that you'd like to mention? I, I know I'd like to talk about Ben Mendelsohn, but is there anyone else that you, stood out for you? Well, we're going Laura, to talk. Yeah. Laura. <laughs> yep. More ways than one, I guess. <laughs> I can think of two things I want to say, but <laughs> yeah, no, I I think you you see a lot more in Sex Lies and Videotapes. That's really got her noticed, and it just so happened that the year later um, she did Pretty Woman and uh, this film. So three really different roles for her and good ones. Well, I thought they downplayed her sexiness in this role. I thought they they could have done gone a, a pretty woman or a sex lies and videotape angle on her simply because of how she looks. And I thought she played her character extremely well in that she was she. You know, most westerns you have the star and then you have the sidekick, and most sidekicks are men, or you know, they're they're there to make the the star look that much better. She was kind of tearing down Tom Selleck's character and doing it in a really funny, romantic way without actually being romantic or or too over the top. I thought she played her character so well. My wife was watching the movie with me too by default and she sat through the whole rest of the movie and she was applauding her at the end because she thought she held up not only held up her end, she actually made the story a little bit better just by being involved. Yeah, well she was uh crazy. That was her name, <laughs> not just the name she was, but she kind of switched on and off, and yeah, you didn't know whether she was actually just pretending to be crazy or she was calling him Roy because of something else until later on when you found out a few more details. But at first, I just thought she might have been faking the craziness to get away from Alan Rickman and his gang. Well, you know, the, I don't think she's the strength as far as the acting performances. And and I agree with kind of what Bobby said is that it's it's weird that they they really did play down kind of her of uh, sexiness in in this film because I think she's an extremely attractive woman, and yeah. and they didn't and and I always think of her as as being played up more in this film than she, than she actually was, but watching it this time I. I liked her performance a little bit better because I noticed like nuances in the story. I haven't seen it for a long time. So it was the, the kind of the idea of that when she talks about her husband, who, when he put her on the boat or the train or wherever to be sent off and he rode away and she said, he never looked back, you know, I know cause I watched uh, to see if he would. And I didn't catch that. And when Tom, until this, this time Tom Selleck riding yeah. away 
and she's watching him and he actually turns and looks back and that's kind of that bonding moment between the two characters is that you know he's that's the symbolism of he cares for her uh, like her husband it didn't and so there was a little bit to the you know some of it, the sub you know the kind of the subplot was a little bit over the top such as her telling the baby to scream in the cave when the dingoes are attacking yeah. <laughs> it's like okay a little heavy handed there you didn't need to necessarily do that but um, but there was there are certain things to her storyline that I I appreciated this time that I'd never noticed before because I'd always kind of written her off as like you know, she's the romantic interest and she's a little nuts but I made that comment to my wife about the romantic interest part because if you you know high noon you've got Gary Cooper and uh, Grace Kelly kissing in the first two minutes of the movie this movie here you have a romantic story that goes it, it intertwines through the whole movie but you they are never really physical in any way shape or form until the very end and that's pretty rare in a western and for her, granted, she's nuts, and she's, you know, that's her character is to to play it off that way. But she, I thought she played that role really well, and it made Tom Selleck's character stronger by letting him do what he was hired to do, which is the, to be the the gunman, the the protector, the killer. And without her dragging him down by being, oh, you know, don't go, don't go, it, it you know, it. it made it stronger for the character for Matthew Quigley's character to be the important part of the movie not about the relationship between the two until the very very end yeah I agree totally she could have I'm really glad I didn't go down the road of her being like comic relief or insignificant partner that you know just um, hangs around she had her character evolved and in what I want to get to when we talk about some of the issues of the film when it comes to our Indigenous Australians, there's scenes of that, like the cliff scene that are really quite emotional. And I think she was highly, highly uh, perfect and did just portrayed her role perfectly in that. But before we go into that, I want to talk about Ben Mendelsohn. Of course, a lot of people know him from Rogue One, and he's just been around for like 40 years in Australian television and movies. It's, he's not an overnight success. He's been in so much stuff, but I think Animal Kingdom would have been the movie that really got him noticed by US agents, and that's why he's popping up in so much stuff now. If you want to go back to his earlier career around this time of Quigley, check out something he did called The Year My Voice Broke, that that's an outstanding movie and really did show his ta- showcase his talent at a young age. He was the kid with that was the quick draw, right? Yeah, he was the kid who says, I've got him, I've got Quigley at the end. And he kept gotcha. on practicing his shooting with Alan Rickman. He kept, you know, wanted to prove that he could shoot. I didn't, right. so I didn't he, even recognize him, you know, because I saw his name in the credits and I went, okay, he's in this film. And I didn't recognize him as I was looking for somebody a little bit older, so he blurred over. Yep, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that that was him. So, just wanted to highlight that he he's a pretty good pretty good actor and worth you know he was even in the Dark Knight Rises. You know, he, he's in lots of good stuff and lots of average stuff, but uh, I don't know. I just like Ben Mendelsohn. He's he's one of our great talents. Uh, now, with the issues of the film, are there any topics in it that come to mind before I talk about it, guys? 
Well, you can. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Gosh, no, I thought this was just a Western. Was it trying to make a political statement? Oh, my God. Uh, on a lighter note, there was no spiders. There was no snakes. You only saw dingoes in one or two scenes, and you saw one boomerang, which the baby had. Right. So, and no, no crocodiles. Seen more. <laughs> no crocodiles. Yeah, no crocodiles, because there wasn't much water. Oh, although they were, that's right, they were that seaside town. Um, look, the violence in the story in, the, in these characters, it's frontier justice, I get that. The outcasts and convicts were all the ranch hands, and it was that era where the Aboriginal uh, people were really mistreated and, you know, I don't know the exact... I don't want to go into political statements, but they really did cover this in a heavy-handed way at times. They didn't just gloss over it. And I thought that part of the movie was quite surprising because I just couldn't remember it, and it really still hits home now as if it was only made yesterday. Well, they equated, you know, for American audiences, they equated to how they... Uh, white settlers treated Native Americans here as, you know, ma- massacring them and uh, you right. know, relegating them to camps and things like that. But it, you know, the the violence, uh, the way it's depicted in this film was so ultra violent, like the driving them off the cliff is, yeah. is, is a really it's is one of the scenes that really disturbed me back then. It's still disturbing now to think that they're not even going to the effort of wasting bullets. You know, and they're just trying to frighten people to the point where they're so frightened that they'll jump off a cliff or fall off a cliff to their deaths. And yeah. the the hopelessness that uh, both Cora and Quigley are having, and Quigley trying to set up and you know start shooting them as quickly as possible, and her running just trying to help in whatever way she can, uh, is is you know that was that was a really really hard scene to watch. My wife cried in that one. She cries fairly easily anyway, but she was watching the movie off and on. Uh, But this scene specifically, she was frozen watching the screen. And as soon as it was, as soon as Cora came across the bottom of the cliff, she was in tears because it is, it's such an emotional moment, which in most Westerns, you know, you have a lot of killing and like you said, frontier justice, and you're expecting that for it to become an emotional moment where you care for people that are victims that you've never seen before. They just show up and they're dead. It was very important. I think it was a statement to how we treated our American Indians as much as it is about how the Australians were treating the Aboriginals. It, it, it's it, it's sad, and I'm sad for our history that it's that it's there in the first place. Yeah, the the harsh statement on Aboriginal treatment was insanely treated here with disrespect and surprised me. Uh, that and those cliff scenes had impact on me as well. I mean, I didn't cry, but the sound effects alone and the yeah. images of the of them falling. You, you you didn't even see them sort of jump fall off and then land like just on the yeah. ground. You saw them mid mid sort of mid air and that had a fairly high impact on me as well. Watching it I totally didn't expect it and thought it was very, very well done. The the tribal indigenous scenes in general were all yeah. really quite well done in this. Uh, yeah, not glossed over like 
some movies can do. They looked authentic. That was the one thing I noticed when Quigley was – when they were discovered the first time by the, the spiritual folks that came to heal them, that man's hand was as authentic – 1875 as anything I've ever seen on screen. That was a real, I mean, he looked like he was from 1875 and it it was, I thought that part, they treated the, the indigenous extremely respectfully in showing them that they were human beings instead of, you know, the, the background to make our heroes better so they can go out and kill more people. I think for its time, it had a pretty big budget for an, an Aussie movie, and it shows in certain scenes, not just the cinematography because of the care taken there, but there was the the scenes with the fire, and some of the sets were really quite good, and, and then you had all the horses and everything there, and that scope, so... Uh, I'm glad they took attention to detail with little things like what you said. Okay, so is there anything else about the story that you guys wanted to bring up? <laughs> well, uh, you know, Bobby already covered some of it, the shootout at the end, which was yeah. utterly ridiculous. If nothing else, <laughs> if you really want to do a shootout with your arch nemesis not giving a fully loaded six-shooter, uh, <laughs> might be a good idea so he doesn't get multiple shots to kill you. Uh, th- the... Uh, the the i the i i i don't know the the idea of you know this kind of you've got the guy beat multiple times quigley's beaten multiple times in this film and yet they want to make an example of him i guess right. I, you know i it right. just it never it, it's it they kind of that part of it is kind of like insulting to the intelligence of both the alan rickman villain as well as to the audience of that you have to have this confrontation and then the whole confrontation with the the British shoulder soldiers, excuse me, at the very end after he's already beaten the villains, yeah. which was really is not that it's kind of like an afterthought, and it's not even really necessary to the plot. Is that it was like why did you add it there other than that he's united these Aborigine people to support him, and then they disappear into the wind again a, a moment later. Is it seemed kind of ridiculous? So, but uh, yeah, uh, though, other than those main things, were primarily focused into the end of the film, where I think is probably the weakest part of it. Uh, that I I thought it was a pretty good film. <laughs> well, you brought up the British soldiers, which they were only in, if I remember right, they were in three scenes. At the beginning, the middle, and the end, and they—I think they were there to. Now, Shane, you would know more than us, but for the political difficulties between the Brits and the Aussies, is that correct? Is isn't that the main reason? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, there was a high disdain of the British because we're considered convicts and still are. I mean, <laughs> they still bag us about stuff like that. Yeah, that, that's why I think they made a point of them being so uh, aloof at times as well. But the funny thing is, and I don't know if you guys would actually even notice this, but they were all they were all Australian actors, including Chris Haywood, who plays the main British, you know, police officer or whatever you want to call him of the guard. They, they were Aussie actors putting on British accents, and I can pick that straight away. I can tell when they're <laughs> fake British. So 
Yeah, there really wasn't a lot of Aussie actors in this speaking in Australian, if that makes sense. They were all putting on, because they were convicts, putting on Irish or English accents. I noticed it. I don't know if you guys did. No, not really. Al, Alan Rickman it was, yeah, well, yeah. was the only one I got anything out of. Yeah, but he, yeah, obviously, and he's uh, playing an Aussie in it, but he was just talking mm. like Hans Gruber. Right. Uh, yeah. I actually bumped into Chris Haywood at a party uh, years ago, a, a movie event, and asked him about Quigley. And my recollection isn't clear because it was at a party and we're all drinking. <laughs> but he said he said he had one of the best times he's ever had on a film set during the making of it. So I can imagine it might have been pretty loose out there while shooting that film in the desert. <laughs> well, speaking uh, of that, uh, the what I wanted what wanted to bring up was Simon Windsor as the director of this. He's had quite the the background for this kind of a of a movie because he did Lonesome Dove, which to me is still the number one miniseries of all time, westerns wise, and that one is extremely rewatchable. He also did Farlap, which I love as a horse racing movie. And he did Lightning Jack, which <laughs> stars Paul Hogan, <laughs> which isn't nearly as, as good or as well-received as any of these others. But I thought he had the right touch for this movie, especially – isn't he Australian too? Or oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a very well-known Australian uh, director, done a lot of stuff with horses. Uh, he he once said to me he doesn't look for the roles or the the projects with horses they just happened to that's how his career panned out but I think he really did make his name started to make his name in the movie from the movie Farlap which is about a, a famous horse horse racing horse here from which under. country now Shane. <laughs> well, a, a, a horse apparently died in America, uh, but yeah, there's contention about that. But The Light Horseman was a, a war movie that he made, which was just brilliant. Uh, and Lonesome Dove would have been the one that really sealed the deal for him to start getting more projects. But unfortunately, his career, like you mentioned, Lightning Jack. I mean, that that was well, he a did free great willing. film. He yeah, Free Willy. It's like, I think oh. it was a random one. He would have been just yeah. the director for hire on that, and because yeah. the script was so family friendly and and you know uplifting, I think anyone could have directed that and made it a good film. Uh, he did Harley Davidson, The <laughs> Marlboro Man, which is like <laughs> it's one of those bad movies that I actually don't. Oh like. God! You know, <sighs> you know why I've seen that movie as many times as I have? It's filmed in Tucson. That's, yeah. that's filmed entirely oh, around Tucson, Arizona. and How can you stand Don Johnson that long? Uh, oh. Hardly at all. But it's, you know, like the like there's a scene where they ride through a tunnel on the motorcycle. That tunnel is about 50 feet long. And they make <laughs> it look like they're riding for miles under, under in an underground Easy tunnel in that, in that film. It was just like, uh, how many times did you have to drive through that tunnel <laughs> just to, to make it look well, like it, not that Simon admitted it, but we did talk about Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, and he he said it was he enjoyed making it, but there's always trepidation when he talks about it. Apparently, because um, I have heard in the past that Don Johnson basically took over the directing reins from him 
on set. So wow. the movie wasn't that good anyway. But I mean, I, I liked it as a kid. I still, I like Mickey Rourke too. So that that helps. And it's got a great opening. The Wanted Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. Come on. That was good. Well, let's go over Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Yes, let's not forget that. (laughs) He kept his friendship with Paul Hogan, but his career. I'm trying trying to make a point that his career has really faltered. Like, and the Phantom was made in Australia. That was not a hit either. Like that, they hoped for a big superhero. Um, franchise with that, yeah, a lot of horses and that. Too. Billy, Billy Zane in a purple leotard. Who would have thought that yes. would be a hit? I don't know. <laughs> so, as as much as I I respect some of the work he's done, a majority of it is pretty ordinary. And Simon Winster is just known as the horse director. Basically, his last film he did in 2011 was called The Cup, which again was about the Melbourne Cup, which is a famous horse race here, like the Australian version of, uh, I guess, the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think Lonesome Dove, he, he milked it and milked it for all he's worth over well, the years. He did make Operation Dumbo Drop, so let's give him credit for that as well. So, or <laughs> but, blame, yeah, well, one that, way or the other. Yeah, that was a bit of fun. <laughs> No horses uh, in that one, just a big elephant. <laughs> uh, any any other comments before we wrap it up, guys? Or Yeah, actually, I went online and I found where Quigley was compared as a Western to others or, or a, a shooting movie to other movies, uh, just to see where it would rank in some people's minds. One website I came across was Gun Zone, and they named the best gun movies of all time, and they named Quigley as the number two western ever about a about a gun, because really? because the Sharps really is the star of the movie. Tom Selleck is just the trigger man, but that Sharps is special in the sound effects and everything about it. It's built around that wonderful that gun. Uh, Outdoor Life lists the top seven long-range shots in movie history, and they named uh, – of all time, of all uh, different wars and so on. And they have Saving Private Ryan's Shot Through the Scope as number one, the Hurt Locker's Sniper Hitting Another Sniper as number two, and Quigley is number three for an entire movie about the Sharps. And mm. behind, just as to, to uh, number four was Enemy at the Gates when he shot him flying across or jumping, shot the other sniper jumping across the opening, and then uh, uh, Sniper, it's or excuse me, Shooter, the movie was uh, number five, and that's the Sniper. Again, these are all those are all modern movies, and Quigley fits number three as a western. So I thought that was pretty fitting for this story it, it says a lot more about the movie uh, authenticity from these are gun people that high, hold this in high regard besides just normal movie viewers and here i thought him putting four inches longer on the gun was him compensating for overcompensating for something the whole time but that's uh, it always boils down to that with patrick yeah it does doesn't it <laughs> I am. I'm fine with my gun, Shane. I just want you to know no extra long barrel, no special ammunition that I need to go talk to the old man about. Okay, that's it. Well, Quig- Quigley was good with the long gun and the short gun. So, you know, he had it, had it all covered. Well, he had the short gun his entire life. You know, it's just he brought out the long gun for show. 
I don't know whether it was with you guys before when we were talking about doing this podcast or with someone else, but yeah, this movie is considered uh, a gun, like a shooter's movie, and this gun that's featured in it is a famous gun, which I would never have known about. Well, it was experimental. They were right on when they said it was something that was never – it was created specifically for this movie. That right. was not a that was not a, mo- a gun that was normal. You could buy it off the street back in whenever this was, 18, 1878, 1880. It, it was just something you had to have built for you, and I thought that the way they – not only integrated it into the story, but the way they used it, and especially, like you said, the sound effects, the effects of the men when they would get hit by the the bullet, and the the reverberation coming seconds apart, they really built it around shooting to show you what a, a real marksman would have been like in that day. Yeah. Oh yeah, I noticed that. I I bought the DVD for five dollars and watched it on my telly, and I could hear the echoing of the gunshots throughout the outback, and the sound effects were dazzling. Like I can only imagine what it sounded like in cinemas, like back in the day that would have had Dolby stereo. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah, the, it was. That's why I went a second time. <laughs> yeah, it's the the gun is definitely a character in itself into the film. I mean, it doesn't have a line, but the, even the way the actors are acting around it is this kind of yeah. almost treasured item or something to be feared. I mean, they they fear Quigley, but they fear the gun more. Um, like, and th- no better scene than the last scene in the film. Well, not the last scene, but the shootout and the fact that they take away his gun and think he's helpless. Uh, yeah. And then you find out that he's actually just as deadly with a, the the uh, a revolver as he is with the gun so or with the, the rifle so well that was a plot point that i thought was that that part i thought they milked it a little too much was because when he's he's killing all these bad guys out in the middle of the outback where they have only his gun with very limited ammunition that's special that has to be made especially i mean it takes some time to make each one of those bullets and he's just basically throwing away pistols left and right when he's obviously as fast as anybody with a pistol and he could use that to protect the aborigines he i that part i thought they really made a point to not to to hide it from the audience when in reality there's no way he wouldn't have carried a six gun no, just as a backup, if nothing else. Exactly. Yes. How, do, how does this movie stack up as a western in general for you guys? Does, does, you know, some of the does it stack up to some of the classic John Wayne films or Clint Eastwood films or movies movies like The Wild Bunch, which is actually one of my favorite westerns. How no. does it stack up for you? Oh no, not even close. <laughs> but, but it's it's a lot of fun. It is a good. It is a very good western. But it's not. Yeah. I wouldn't put it up in the classic uh, the classic area of like the Searchers, which I know Shane doesn't like as much. But, oh come on! So, <laughs> <I never said laughs> um, or Unforgiven, which are my top two westerns of all time. You know, it, it's there. There's. It, but it is just an enjoyable, f- fun ride that does have an underlying message to it, and that you know. But it's it doesn't it doesn't dwell on it too long, and it's not too dark. And you know, it, the 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 hero of the film has a twinkle in his eye and kind of a smile always in the corner of his his lips at any point in time. So there's there's definitely a distinctive character to root for where. 
like Unforgiven and The Searchers or even The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly or Fistful of Dollars, some of those, some of my favorite Westerns, they're, they're very much shades of gray. And that's where that the, the kind of the difference is that this is, this is very much the white hats and black hats uh, of yeah. the, the Western genre. And I, I, I put it in the same vein as a lot of John Wayne films is just as enjoyable as Sons of Katie Elder or El Dorado or something, a Rio Bravo or something along that. But it doesn't, I, I don't think it's, it's up there with all time great Western films. Like Power Rider. Yeah, Pale, Ri- Pale Rider is a great film. I like Pale Rider. Uh, I wouldn't put Same it in my here. top ten, but I really do like Pale Rider, and I would put Pale Rider above this one. But I really do like Quigley. I'm a little different because I I like to watch movies over and over again, and westerns are one of those genres that I'm either going to watch it 25 more times or I'm done watching it once and or maybe twice again if it's on television. This is one of those movies that I will watch anytime it's on. I watched it I actually watched this within the last year also just for fun because I just liked the movie. My dad was a, a gun dealer so I was raised around guns and to watch something that loved the gun that was being portrayed throughout the movie listening to the sound watching the the action once the gun actually hits a target stuff like that is really exciting for me and it's a beautiful beautiful movie and seeing all the the like uh patrick was just saying with the black hats and the white hats is to see you don't see that very often today where you've got the straight good guy who just he's unwavering and it's just it shows a lot of integrity, and I, I love that kind of a setting. You know, the high noon type of settings, things like that. I don't know if I would put this in my top ten westerns of all time. You know, Outlaw Josie Wales and movies along those lines, Butch Cassidy and so on, I think are a little bit better movies. But this is definitely top 20 for me just because of the – the pieces of it that are so exciting for me to watch, not as a movie as a whole, but just an enjoyable ride is fun for me. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I, I liked it, but I have, a, I struggle through a lot of war movies and Western movies always have because I weren't, wasn't brought up with them. And I never saw this, you know, until VHS. And then I never saw it again. And, uh, until for this podcast, which I'm grateful for, because I know it was always one that, I wondered about whether I'll buy it for the collection, and I did, and so I'm happy to have it. There's a great story from, um, you know, in a book that I read, a biography by a football player, Australian football player, and when I say football, I mean rugby league. His name's Paul Vorton, and he talks about an incident where he was on a plane and he sat next to Tom Selleck, and I think it was during the making of this film. I'm not too sure, around that time. Anyway, they were sitting together and they're having a chat, and all these people kept coming up, and every time people started coming up walking towards Tom Selleck, he'd go, oh, no, you know, here we go. But they were all going to the football player. <laughs> Paul Horton, not Tom Selleck. And eventually Tom Selleck turned around to this you know, guy he didn't know next to him and said, who are you? Because <laughs> no one was going up to him. So I thought that was a pretty funny story. Uh, uh, all right. So I guess that's we can, we can close our closing comments. I, I want to say that I'll probably give this two and a half gallon hats <laughs> out of five. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of fun. 
love George, um, Laura San Giacomo, but I, I don't know. Um, I can see why it didn't do that well. I, I, I don't know. If it, it sort of dips in places. Uh, it's slow. The pace levels, they, your interest levels don't drop, but the pace of the movie does. And I don't know, it offshoots certain aspects of the film, and it was quite dire. And, you know, the treatment of the Aboriginals wasn't, you know, uh, graphic, but it was quite dire and uh, realistic. And the only other time I can ever remember people getting pushed off a cliff like that would have been in 300, which was a massive scene, but that was all fantasy, I guess. This this was a lot more realistic. Um, but Tom, Tom Selleck was good, and I praise, praise him as the lead. I, I re- really think... Another Quigley would have maybe maybe gone down well. Maybe Quigley in America or yeah somewhere else would have worked. He was a good character to watch. Any other closing statements from you guys? Um, I would say, from a movie standpoint, I would probably say maybe three and a half hats. Uh, what'd you say? <laughs> ten gallon. Ten hat. gallon hats. There we go. Three and a half. From a movie standpoint, it's got its weaknesses. The there are points where obviously they had to use plot points to move the story along, but from a western, unique western standpoint, with very beautiful settings the gun which i uh, just the gun the gun the gun the the joy of watching these characters just do things that you don't normally see in most westerns to me it's the rewatchability of it is high i would say it's four and a half ten gallon hats from a rewatchability standpoint just because it's an enjoyable ride i still will put this in my top 20 westerns of all time i have bought and sold this one multiple times this is the last time i'll ever buy it because it's never leaving my collection again i'd forgotten how much i enjoyed it and i really do care about this i feel sad that tom tom Selleck did not have a longer career i think he's wonderful um and i miss alan rickman very much as uh, a fan but uh, just to see this again, it was fun. My wife, who doesn't like westerns, watched it and very much enjoyed it. She was actually humming this, the music to this two hours yeah. later. It was just it just stuck with us both. So yeah, I I think this is definitely a keeper. It's one that if you've never seen it, please treat yourself to it. But if you have seen it years ago, watch it again. I think you'd, you'd enjoy it just as much this time. Yeah, for me it was like watching a new movie and I'm glad you mentioned the music because I have forgotten to mention the score previously. Uh, it was great. It was actually rousing and it was up there actually uh, for, you know, westerns it was it was good. And well, it was the same song over and over again, yeah, but yeah, it's fun as the way they used it. And there was one scene especially, I, and you mentioned it too, Shane, is when he jumps from the burning house over to the non-burning house. Yeah. I, I got a kick out of it because – and this is probably a spoiler alert, but maybe not. But when he leaps, you hear the da-da-da-da, and he's leaping this heroic music. And just as he lands on the other side, the music just – stops as he goes crashing the roof in a hilarious moment and the comedy in this movie was actually quite funny it was very understated but it was hilarious when it it made you laugh so 
sorry to, to go over to talk over the top of you, but that music was was cool. Yeah, no, that's you weren't talking over the top of me, and I, I agree with you totally. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was funny. Uh, uh, to me, I didn't laugh that much, but it, I guess that is because it was an understated comedy. I got got it, but I didn't laugh out loud at any point. Patrick. Well, I do believe the film stands the test of time. I, I'd probably give it three and a half whatever, gallon hats or whatever we're doing this for this episode. Uh, it, it does have its weaknesses. I, I've already talked about the kind of the ending, the little bit stretching credibility of the, the characters at that point. The, the violence against the Aborigine people, I got the message the first time you slaughtered a group of them. I didn't need to necessarily see a second scene. I, I got it. They're bad guys. Yeah. They're, you know, that I, I thought the cliff scene the people going off the cliff was a very dramatic scene. And I don't think the first, they need even needed the first scene at all. So, right. uh, it, so there, it, it was a little bit overlong. Uh, you really didn't need to go into a lot of the, the information. Um, but as a whole, it is still just a fun ride and it was a, a fun, enjoyable film. I agree with Bobby that people who saw it back in, 1990 should go back and rewatch it again and they'll probably find something that they really enjoyed and people haven't seen it at all it's it's worth a, a viewpoint or a viewing uh, once you get past uh, Tom Selleck's kind of clownish uh, attire at the the, the <laughs> very blue shirt with the very red uh you know uh, bandana just it was like I, I thought Marty McFly stepped out of Back to the Future three and saying that you know Clint Eastwood didn't dress like this and it, it, you know it it just seems kind of cartoonish in his his costuming which is weird because none of the other characters are like that you know they they didn't it, it was just the, his character dressed like that and it seemed out of place but as a whole it is a, a very enjoyable film and I, I highly recommend it. Well, I think you described him as a rodeo clown, Patrick, but he no. was just being a yank. He just wanted to be noticed. <laughs> no, 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 oh. no. Wow. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's all right. Those bloody loud yanks. Yeah. At least no, we're not an island of convicts. That's all I got to say. Oh, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm used to hearing that from the palms, which is our, our word for English. Oh, it's Palms? <laughs> Tom's prisoner of her majesty. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a it's a slang word out here. If you bump into a British person, you call them a pom. Oh, they don't okay. like it much. I we're never... not making a lot of friends over in the UK. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who oh, listened well. to the James Bond podcast probably didn't like us very much either. So. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, all right. That does it for our review of uh, Quigley or Quigley Down Under, depending on where you're from. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in purchasing or renting this film, you can do so at our sister site at cinematrove.com. As always, please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you have any review requests for movies from the 80s or 90s even, please send us an email to comments at moviehousememories.com. Thanks once again for listening to our little podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop there. You can follow us on Facebook, Lunchtime Movie Review, or on Twitter, Lunchtime at Lunchtime Movie, 
on either Facebook or Twitter. You can keep us, uh, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, information on upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network, including this podcast, as well as Sunday Seconds with the Duke and Movie House Concessions. Until next time, I'm Shane. I'm Bobby. And I'm Patrick. And we have to get out of here and you guys are invited. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentsToSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.